Well, this is the breakout called Am I Really a Christian? My name is Peter Kroll. I am the president of Disciple Makers. I graduated from Bucknell University in 1999, last century. And I've been serving with Disciple Makers ever, ever since. I was so impacted by the ministry as a student that I wanted to keep being a part of it, and I haven't looked back. So it's a real privilege to be here with you. We're on pages 36 and 37 in your packet. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and hearing the truth about Jesus from a young age. But the first time I remember being deeply moved and personally impacted by the message about Jesus was at a Christian summer camp when I was eight years old. There's one uh, dark night at camp. The counselors put on a skit about what they thought hell was going to be like. And it scared hell right out of me. I knew I didn't want to go there. So I prayed that night to receive Jesus Christ as my savior. I wanted what Jesus had to offer. And I think I might have become a Christian that night. However, I went back home, and though I continued going to church and I got to start taking communion, now that I had professed to be a Christian, nothing else in my life really changed very much. And so the next summer, back at summer camp, I had some serious doubts. I wasn't sure if it had really worked the first time or not, so I prayed to receive Christ again. And I actually made a habit of it for a number of years. This reflects what I believe to be two frequent struggles for many who wish to follow the Lord Jesus. This is the first point on your outline, two frequent struggles. Because as a child and as a teenager, I, I regularly wrestled with this question. How do I know? How do I know it worked? How do I know I'm a Christian? I think I'm a Christian. I think I've been rescued by Jesus. I'm pretty sure God loves me and gave up his son for me. But did it really work? Am I really in? And in particular, what about all the sins that I still commit? That's struggle number one, frequent failure. Struggle number one is frequent failure. What about all these sins I still commit? But there's another struggle that I had, and I think many of us still have. What about my insecurity? What about my lack of confidence? What about the competing voices, both inside and outside of my head? What about all my fears and doubts? If my confidence isn't rock solid, or maybe why don't I feel as excited about Jesus now as I did on that first night when I prayed? Though it can take many forms, struggle number two is conflicting emotions. I think these are two frequent struggles for many of us, frequent failure and conflicting emotions. In recent years, a few of my own children have asked similar questions. One of my sons, when he was only age five or six, he asked me one day, Papa, 
If Jesus died to take my sin away, why do I still have it? Why do I still sin? His implicit question was, did he really take away the sin of the world or not? Am I really a Christian or not? Perhaps you've had similar questions. And I think these questions can go in a few directions. Maybe those questions arise primarily when you look at yourself. You can see frequent failure. There is much sin. There is stuff you are ashamed of. And there is a constant battle to do what you think you ought to do. Have I done something bad enough that I've screwed up my chances and there's no going back? Or maybe you experience conflicting emotions. At times, you feel you've lost that love and feeling. Your head is filled with competing voices about what is true. The ups and downs of life leave you somewhat uncertain about everything. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Did he really rise from the dead? Is God there and can he hear me? By the way, if someone would like, there is one more chair up here on the front row. You don't have to be embarrassed to walk up there and take it. If you want to see right here. So sometimes the questions go in that direction when you look at yourself. But sometimes the questions go in a different direction. Maybe they come up when you're looking at someone else. Maybe you have a sister or a brother who used to come to church but doesn't do so anymore. Or your boyfriend or your girlfriend is a really nice person and you really want them to be a Christian, but you're not sure how to know whether they are or not. And your feelings for them only cloud your judgment on the matter. Is it even possible to know that you have truly been rescued by Jesus or that someone else you care about has truly been rescued by Jesus. In this workshop, I propose to you that, yes, you can know this. In fact, God wants you to know this. This does not require code word access to a secret knowledge into the mysteries of the universe but it does require you to get brutally honest about some pretty personal questions. Because God gave us one entire book of the Bible dedicated to this very question. It's a brief book of the Bible, but it packs a punch. It's the letter of 1 John. It's near the, near the end of the Bible. In this letter... John, the author, he gives us three tests to know whether someone's faith is true faith. He gives us three questions to grant assurance to those who are struggling. And I will get to those three tests soon. It's point number three on the outline that you can see is coming up. But to make sure that those tests do what they're supposed to do and don't cause any unnecessary confusion or heartache, before I explain those tests, I have to first clarify a crucial distinction. That's point number two on your outline. I need to clarify a crucial distinction, and that is the distinction between becoming a Christian and identifying a Christian. The distinction between becoming a Christian 
and identifying a Christian. This is a crucial distinction. Look at what John said about why he wrote his letter. On your page of scripture references, the very first one is from this letter, 1 John 5, verse 13. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the essence of his sentence is, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So notice in this verse that he is writing to those who already believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, his intended audience for this letter is a community of people who have placed their trust in Jesus as the Son of God. They already believe. They walk with Jesus. They want to follow him. They just need some assurance that Jesus has kept his promise to give them eternal life. Now, the guy who wrote this letter probably wrote a few other books of the Bible as well. And one of them is what we call the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a narrative biography of Jesus. And while John's first letter, what we call 1 John, it was written to help you identify a Christian, was written to help you know that you have eternal life, his gospel was written to help you become a Christian. Look at what John said about why he wrote that gospel. Here's the next reference in your page, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, both his gospel and his first letter have these purpose statements. I write these things to you so that, but do you, do you notice the subtle difference between the two? He wrote his gospel to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that by believing they might receive life. And then later he wrote his first letter to those who had gone ahead and believed in Jesus as the Son of God, but he's now writing to them so they could now know that they had in fact received that life, that eternal life. In other words, the gospel is a book to help you become a Christian, and the first letter of John is a book to help you identify a Christian. The Gospel of John helps you to acquire life, and the first letter of John helps you to know that you have acquired it. Maybe it feels like I'm belaboring this point, but it is of the highest priority that we understand this distinction. Because if we don't, we may end up confusing the two things. John's letter is going to give us three tests for identifying a Christian. And if you mistake them as three steps or three prerequisites for becoming a Christian, you will get the entire thing all wrong. You will confuse the end with the beginning, the result with the cause, and you will end up with a false message that can't save anyone. We don't want to do that. So think of it this way. 
John's gospel is like a letter of acceptance from the university you now attend. And his first letter is like a course schedule or a transcript from that university. You see, the first thing, that letter of acceptance, is what made you a student at this school. And the second, the, the course schedule, is what helps you to know that you're not making this up. Pinch me, I'm dreaming. Did I really get into this place? Or again, John's gospel is like a coronavirus, and his first letter is like a COVID test. The first thing, the virus, is what makes someone a carrier of the disease. And the second one, the letter, the test, is what helps them to know that they are already a carrier of the disease. Or again, I'll give you one more. John's gospel is like a baseball umpire, and his first letter is like a baseball scoreboard. The first one decides whether a runner is safe or out and whether a run counts or not. The second one simply shows everybody what the decision was. Okay, have I made this clear enough? We must get this distinction because I am now about to walk you through John's three tests of assurance. And the point we must understand is that these three things will not turn someone into a Christian. No, these tests are like the scoreboard. They simply show us what is already true. They provide diagnostic evidence to know whether someone has, in fact, been saved by Christ or not. And if the tests reveal that they have not been saved by Christ, the absolute worst thing we can do is ask them to fudge the tests or double down on them no, what we have to do in that case is go back to John's gospel to help them learn how to go and become a Christian, which is simply to trust in Jesus as the chosen one of God to bring life to the world and rule over it as king. So with that said, let's dig into the three tests. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, how can you be certain that it worked? How can you know that you do, in fact, are now a possessor of eternal life? John gives us three clear tests. In his letter, he introduces the three tests in chapter 2. And then he refers to them and repeats them over and over again through the letter and intertwining them with one another. So I'm going to walk them through, through them in chapter 2 where he introduces them. The three tests are, the test of personal change, the test of personal affection, and the test of personal witness. I'll be going back over them. The test of personal change, the test of personal affection, and the test of personal witness. Let's take them one at a time. First is the test of personal change. Look at 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, verse 3 here states the matter plainly. You can know that you have come to know Jesus Christ if you keep his commandments. Verse 4, he says that, that you can say you know him, but then if you don't obey his commandments, you are a liar. Verse 5, he says that if you have truly been conquered by the love of Christ, you will keep his word. In other words, you will act as though he is in charge, and you are not, and you will do whatever he tells you to do. In short, verse 6 repeats that you may know that you are saved, you may know that you abide in him, if your life starts to look like Jesus' life did. If you are being conformed to his image, such that you visibly follow in his footsteps. You walk in the same way in which he walked. So what does this mean? This means that you can identify a true Christian as someone who obeys Jesus. And since the commands of Jesus are recorded in the Bible, and the entire Bible was written by Jesus and about Jesus, this means that you can identify a true Christian as someone who obeys the Bible. Now let me remind you of something, and then let me clarify something. Here's your reminder. This is not how to become a Christian. Remember, there's a crucial distinction. This is not how to become a Christian. No amount of law-keeping or obedience could ever earn God's favor. This is about identifying a Christian. That's your reminder. Here's a clarification. Though John sounds extreme here, okay, we may know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It sounds pretty extreme. We have to understand that he is not talking about perfection. He is not talking about perfection. He is not saying that a true Christian always obeys and never sins. No, he said right in verses 1 and 2 that he assumes that we will sin. I'm writing these to you so that you may not sin, but if, if you do, when you do, we have an advocate. You see, he wants us to deepen our trust in Jesus to advocate for us with the Father. He wants us to deepen our trust that Jesus puts himself between us and the anger of God at sin. That's what that word propitiation means, that God's wrath is coming and Jesus jumps in the middle. He's, he's sort of like a baseball glove. I'm a baseball coach. That's why I use a lot of baseball metaphors. 
He's like a baseball glove. The line drive of God's wrath is coming at you. But when you hold up the glove and squeeze, there is nothing to fear. As I tell the seven-year-olds on my team who are afraid of the ball, don't worry, as long as you catch it, it can't hit you. (laughs) Just hold up Jesus and squeeze, and you'll be all right in the end. So don't hear this first test as though any sin at all will disqualify you from passing the test. Instead of looking for the presence of any sin at all, instead, what John is doing is he wants you to look at the direction of your life. Look at the direction of your life. When you sin, do you turn away from it and move toward the Lord to change? Or do you love your sin and nurture your sin and make excuses for it and find ways to blame other people for it and continue in it? That's why I prefer to call this test not the test of obedience, but the test of change. It's not an investigation to see if there is any sin present at all in your life. It is an investigation to see if a person's life is changing when they are confronted with the word of God. So when the Bible says, as it does say in your packet, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, that means that you will see true Christians growing into some of the most pleasant people to be around. They don't hold grudges against those who have offended them. They don't hold on to their rights at all costs, but they give up their rights when it will benefit others. They don't share gossip or listen to slanderous reports around the water cooler, but they always look for kind and positive things to say about other people. When the Bible says, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That means that you will see true Christians guarding their hearts, reserving their bodies for the intimate delights of the marriage bed. They don't explore or experiment sexually. They don't support trafficking and slavery by engaging with pornography. They may have these things in their past. They may have an ongoing struggle in the present, but they don't make excuses and they take action to put it to death. Give just one more example, Hebrews 10, when the Bible says in verse 25, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. That means you will see true Christians making every effort to spend time together, worshiping the Lord Jesus, not only in private, but also in community with others. They don't see their walk with Christ to be a merely private or a merely individual affair. They know they are part of something bigger and they look for places where they can not only receive from others, but give and invest themselves freely to help others out. So when the Bible commands something, true Christians will respond with an effort to obey, an effort to put their sin to death. So when you apply this test to your life, what do you find?
Some of you, I think, need a deeper comfort, and you really should be comforted by this test. Others of you may need a more dire warning. First, the, the comfort. Please remember, you're not looking for perfection. You're not looking for any stain of sin. But if you look at your life and you see real movement toward becoming like Jesus, you should be comforted. Yes, you still struggle. Yes, you still sin. Yes, your emotions are often still conflicting. But this doesn't necessarily mean you failed the test. Let's say the sin you struggle with this year is less severe than the sin you struggled with last year. Some things have been set aside and put to death. Now you face new battles or even new expressions of old battles. But when you see something in God's word, you want to change, you invite change, and you experience some things actually changing. And if that's what you see, then please receive the comfort of this first test. Despite your frequent failure, despite your conflicting emotions, be comforted by this. These are signs that you are really a Christian. However, if you look at your life and you do not see movement toward becoming like Jesus, you should be more concerned. Maybe you see sin in your life and you don't care. Maybe others have shared with you, like I have done today, what the Bible says about a matter, but you think you know better. Some may have advised you to be more careful, but you're confident you can handle it. You've learned to live with your sin. Maybe you love it and nurture it because you're not sure you could live without it. I don't care if the Bible prohibits sexual activity outside of marriage. I have come to love it and I need more of it. People have warned me about dating a non-Christian. They've warned me from the Bible, but I think I'm making a difference by being in his or her life. The Bible tells me to join a church, but I'm just so sleepy on Sunday mornings. I think I'll just watch something online. Here is your warning. You might not yet have eternal life. This is the first test. It is the test of personal change. Are you changing to be like Jesus? The second test is the test of personal affection. We're back to 1 John chapter 2, moving later in the chapter, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, John warns us that what a person says does not always reflect what a person is. Right in verse 9, someone may claim to be a Christian, they may claim to be in the light, but then demonstrate that they are anything but. 
verse 9, this person claims to walk in the light. They claim to be a member of God's team, a member of God's family. But if this person hates a fellow Christian, that's what the word brother means here, a fellow Christian, then they are still in darkness. If, if they hate a fellow Christian, they have not yet been transferred from Satan's kingdom to Christ's kingdom. Verse 10 says that loving other Christians is a proof that one dwells in the kingdom of light, that you abide in the light. Verse 11 says that those who hate fellow Christians don't even know what they are doing. They are blind and they are stumbling around. Now, love and hate are pretty strong words. Those are the words he's using here. So perhaps you might say, I don't, I don't hate these people. I just don't like them very much, and I don't feel the need to share my life with them. But I don't have anything against them. I want to show you how John explains later what he means by love and what he means by hate. It comes here in chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he, he's talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So you see, he's defining love for us here. Love means, verse 16, giving up your preferences, giving up your rights, even giving up your own life for the good of other Christians. Verse 17, love means that you use your wealth to benefit others. You open your heart to the needs of the Christians around you. And verse 18, love the love of God flowing through you means that you love not only with your words, but also with your actions. And so flip it around. If that's what love means, what does hate mean? Hate means claiming your preferences, claiming your rights, even claiming your own life to the detriment of others. It means that instead of using your wealth to benefit people, it means that you use people to benefit your wealth. It means that you communicate love with words and words alone. You don't follow it up with action. You know, that's a, saying I love you is a good way to hate somebody if you don't actually act on it. So if you'd like to identify a true Christian, you will find that person with other Christians, sharing their lives, sharing their possessions, helping one another out as any has need, and doing so even at great cost to themselves. True Christians will have a real affinity. They'll sense an inner obligation to care for one another. <clears throat> I experienced this in a pretty dramatic way when I was in college. I had gone on a bus trip for some event or other, and on account of something out of my control, I don't remember if it was a mechanical failure or a missed connection or something, on this bus trip, I found myself stuck in downtown Pittsburgh overnight 
with nowhere to stay, and the bus company was taking no responsibility for it. They were closing the terminal and kicking us out. This was the 90s. We had no cell phones at the time. I had to use what we called back then a phone booth. It was this little thing you lock yourself into and you pick up the phone. It had a huge book inside of it filled with yellow pieces of paper. And I flipped through those papers and I looked up the number for a church close by. And after connecting with the pastor, he put me in touch with a family from that church. And within an hour or so, they had come to pick me up at the terminal. They took me back to their house where they fed me, made me feel very much at home, gave me a bed to sleep in. The next morning, they gave me a ride back to the terminal and saw me off. I don't even remember the name of these people. I've never been in contact with them ever since. But I was shocked at the time to see true sons and daughters of God acting in such a strange way towards someone they had never met. But all I had to do was say I was a fellow believer in Jesus Christ in immediate need, and they were right there to take care of it. This seemed dramatic to me at the time. But in the decades since, I've come to find that this is really not all that dramatic. This is just what true Christians do. Those who have been saved by the love of Jesus cannot help but see that love flow through them and out to serve others. But those who think they are Christians but really are not are filled with all kinds of clever words and speech, but they keep themselves aloof from others. They refuse to get close. They don't enter into people's lives, and they will definitely not trust anybody else with their stuff. When you apply this test to your life, what do you find? My guess is that Many of you need a deeper comfort from this test to help you despite your failure and despite your emotion. Others of you may need a more dire warning from this test. First, the comfort. Remember, you're not looking for perfection, but if you look at your life and you see heartfelt affection for other Christians, you should be comforted. Yes, you still struggle. Yes, you still have conflicts with people. You still get mad at people. Yes, your emotions are still conflicting. But that doesn't mean you failed the test. Let's say you, you're still engaged with your fellowship on campus and even better with your local church. You're looking for ways to serve and you're increasing in how much you're willing to share your own life with other people. If someone needs something, you want to find a way to help them get it even if all you can do is pray and ask God for it. Please receive the comfort of this second test. These are signs that you really are a Christian. But here's the warning. If you look at your life and you don't want anything to do with other Christians, you're more than happy to call yourself a Christian and to be called a Christian, but you do church online when you really don't have to. Or maybe you don't do church at all. Maybe your closest friends or the majority of your friends are not believers in Christ and your stuff is your own. It's here for your own advancement. Then you should be way more concerned. Perhaps you're not telling the truth about being a Christian. Maybe you're even deceiving yourself. This is the second test. It's the test of personal affection. Do you love 
other Christians. Finally, the third test is the test of personal witness. Back to chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 21 to 23. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, this third test has to do with what you profess to be true. Verse 21, he's talking about the truth that you know. So what do you profess to be true? Verse 22 says that the one who lies and who rejects the truth will deny that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a fancy word that just means he is the chosen one. He's the one that God appointed to save and rule the world. So if you deny that Jesus is the Son, he is the one that God has appointed, then you do not have the Father. Please let that sink in. Anyone who denies the Son has, uh, sorry, anyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. Verse 23. It doesn't matter how much that person talks about God. They might give thanks to God or make a living off of being spiritual. But from Mormonism to Muhammad, from Oprah Winfrey to whatever was the latest movie about angels walking on earth, if anyone speaks of knowing God without also making divine and messianic claims about Jesus, then the God of whom they speak is a false God. That person is proving, according to the Bible, it's right here, verse 22, to be a liar and an antichrist. Now, that term antichrist may trip some people up. It's actually a very rare word in the Bible. And every time it comes up, it's a general term referring to many people. In the Bible, the, the antichrist is not a single futuristic figure in charge of a demonic world government. Maybe you've heard the term used that way. That's not what antichrist in the Bible. Antichrist is anyone who is against anti-Jesus. The Christ. Anyone, as this verse says, who denies that Jesus is, in fact, God's chosen king. You see, they stand against or opposed to Jesus, who is the one who alone can save them. And so if they are opposed to the only one who can save them, then it is not possible for them to be among those who have been saved by him. Therefore, they cannot be true Christians, even if they care a lot and talk a lot about spirituality, 
about meditation, about piety, about obedience, or about connection to God. One last thing on this third test. Notice I haven't called it the test of belief. I call it the test of personal witness. Because in verse 23, when he says, whoever confesses the Son, he's not talking about a private affair of the heart. He's not talking about your your personal doctrine. He's talking about public confession. He's talking about whom do you identify yourself with in front of other people? If you belong to Christ, you will identify with him. You will confess the Son with your lips, and you will pledge your allegiance to him before the world. And this is very similar to what Jesus himself said in the last passage here, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. This is Jesus talking. Everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So a true Christian will identify publicly as a Christian. It is not something they are ashamed of. It is not something they keep to themselves. Now, of course, there are some situations where Christians are being physically attacked and killed. This test doesn't mean that a true Christian ought to go out in the public square in such a country and request a violent interrogation. So please don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place for churches to go underground, but they are still confessing to be churches of Jesus Christ They're confessing to be followers of the risen Christ. And if they are arrested, they don't turn aside from that to deny him. There is one man whom the Apostle John, the guy who wrote this letter, uh, there's one guy whom John had mentored, a man named Polycarp. And during one of the severest persecutions of the Christians by the, the Roman Empire, Polycarp was arrested and brought into a stadium in front of thousands of people to be made public mockery of. And the emperor gave him the chance to escape with his life if he would but condemn the Christian movement and deny that Jesus was the son, that he was the king. Call Caesar king instead of Jesus and we'll let you go. And here's what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And so they executed him. This is the sort of thing that pours out of a true Christian under duress. He never did me any injury. How can I deny him? How can I blaspheme my king and savior? So when you apply this test to your life, what do you find? I think many of you probably need a deeper comfort, and some of you may need a more dire warning. First, the comfort. Remember, you're not looking for perfection. But if you look at your life, and generally you see public allegiance to Christ, 
you should be comforted. Yes, you still struggle. Yes, you're sometimes afraid of what people think. Okay, I am too. Yes, you probably don't take full advantage of every opportunity to bear witness to Jesus the Christ. Does this mean you failed the test? No, no. Let's say you publicly identify as a Christian. You've stood in front of your church. You've professed that Jesus is your only hope of rescue from your sin. You've been baptized to mark you as one of God's people. And though it's hard to deal with, you have experienced some shame or ridicule from others for your antiquated beliefs. But you are more ready than you used to be to have your identity known and to be wrapped up with Jesus. If that is you, then please receive the comfort of this third test. These are signs that you are really a Christian. But please hear the warning. If you look at your life and you don't want anybody to think of you as a Christian, You'd rather be ignored by your friends than to be known as one of those religious weirdos. You do not want to tell other people about Jesus. You'll say and do whatever is expected of you to fit in. Or maybe Jesus is okay when you're with one group of friends, but he is nothing to you when you're with another group of friends. You should be way more concerned. Perhaps you're not telling the truth about being a Christian. Maybe you're even deceiving yourself. This is the third test. It's the test of personal witness. Do you claim in front of other people that Jesus is your king? Not every day, not every time you talk to them, but in, in general, do they know it? In conclusion, here is how to know who is really a Christian, this is what the scoreboard looks like at the end of the, game, end of the game. Change, affection, and witness. When you struggle with your doubts and your fears, look for those three things. When you are trying to figure out whether you can trust a Christian leader to be a true or a false prophet, look for those three things. These three things will not help you to become a Christian, but they will help you to identify a true Christian. And please be encouraged when you see progress. That's what we're looking for is progress, not perfection, but progress. So remember that if you struggle with sin, that is okay. That is normal. That's life on earth. If these three things are not easy for you, that's just what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. But if you can't see these three things at all, or even one of them at all, then I urge you to trust in the Lord Jesus alone to rescue you. You cannot save yourself. You, you can follow your heart if you want, and you can be true to yourself right off the cliff and into the eternal judgment of God. And so please find life not in yourself, but in the one who delights to give it to you, the one who gave his life so you could be his. Let me pray for us, 
and then we'll be, we'll be done to head to dinner, but I'll be around if anybody has any questions. Father in heaven, thanks so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for not leaving us to have to figure these things out for ourselves, but you have told us what to look for, these observable behaviors that, that show us what's on the scoreboard. I pray, Lord, that you would please comfort those who need greater comfort despite their doubts and their struggles. And grant them much encouragement and assurance through these tests. And Father, I pray that you would please uh, increase the intensity of the warning for those who need the warning, those who might be deceiving themselves. Help them to uh, look back to you and to your word that they might come to you and be saved. Help us all and help us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.